makes sense, right? Because it's the town hall. But um, why don't we just start off uh, really quick in a few minutes? Um, why don't you just introduce yourself? Tell us, um, you know, who you are, how you got to where you are now, and um, some of the things that you've been been fiddling around with with Web three. Yeah. So yeah. So I start. I'm a you know a full stack developer. Uh, you know, started in uh, you know. So so it's interesting. I started in kind of. Uh, finance applications, enterprise finance, finance applications. So, you know, that, that six, year, six years ago, I was working in an accounting and finance, um, uh, like, like consulting uh, uh, industry, where, you know, basically the, the, the biggest challenge or biggest problems is that, you know, like uh, enterprises would, would, you know, upgrade their, their systems internally, you know, like, you know, ERP systems to like SAP or Oracle. And, you would have all this financial data that what was like out of sync, meaning that like uh, they had to go back and reconcile these transactions, and um, you know nobody really knew what data was accurate, and there was t- tons of issues with like double spend and 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 um, it, like nothing balanced, right? And so you know back then, you know like we made like it was funny is we made money as a company by like like basically going in and putting more people into an organization to essentially go clean up the books, like the financial books. And it was always like odd to me. It's like, you know, if there was just a ledger or like, if there was just like a way that these systems were more accurately reported, like you wouldn't have this problem. Like we wouldn't have to spend so much money trying to clean this stuff up. And um, so I, you know, I, I was in grad school at the time uh, and I was was studying, you know, quantitative finance. you know, kind of was like, was like more interested in the, like the the programming and the coding of building like financial systems or systems that like accounting systems or systems that can, you know uh, reconcile transactions stuff like that more so than the actual like finance itself and that and that's where I kind of like realized it's like oh I actually enjoy like the fintech portion of this more than the actual like finance you know side of this but but it was good to have that understanding and so I started programming. Uh, you know, I started out in R, which was like, a, which is really like, you know, it's used by a lot of quants and finance. Uh, very powerful for like data analytics, you know, data science. Very powerful, very powerful for machine learning or, uh, you know, any type of like co- kind of quantitative finance or just kind of any kind of like heavy finance stuff. And uh, then eventually, you know, just realized I enjoyed application development. You know, and and there wasn't like one part that I enjoyed more than the other. I kind of enjoyed the front end. I enjoyed back end. I enjoyed database, uh, you know, kind of all of it. And so I, I kind of eventually migrated into a full stack developer role, um, kind of, you know, liking the idea of being able to build end-to-end solutions. And then, uh, you know, as I kind of then uh, moved into that role, um, I, you know, I started working in different industries. So, you know, I worked in the home builder, indus- home builder industry, I worked for the airline industry, um, you, you know, I worked with uh, a couple of different healthcare projects, you know, with Medicare and, and also pharmaceutical. And the same problem, like, always was there. Is like the, there, there's just, there was this information gap, this data gap, where, like, companies were always struggling to, to basically deal with accurate data or, like, manage their data accurately. And if they, and if they did, it was, they, had, they had to spend an enormous amount of money to do it. Uh, nobody shared data. Um, everybody had different, you know, um, uh, uh, data sets that, that were, you know, one said this, another said that. They were all out of sync. And so the irony was like, you know, I, 
Inflation was everything away because you know, blockchain kind of solves a lot of these problems. But I didn't fully, like, so I didn't really fully understand blockchain. And so instinctively, I said, okay, I'm going to try, you know, try to build one. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of how it kind of eventually got into Web3. It was just, you kind of see a lot of these problems with accounting finance now. And, and, and it's the same with every industry, like I said, you know. And, and then really eventually realized, like, oh, okay, like, this is really what Web3 is solve. I think the crypto thing is, is actually sometimes a little bit more of a, a distraction because the actual, like, Web3 actually would solve way more problems in enterprise than it, than, 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 than it solves, you know, from a crypto perspective. The, the crypto portion is actually valuable, but, but a lot of attention is not given to what, hey, there's actually real problems that could be solved. They're, they're like the real things that could be solved today with Web3. Um, but but the, all the focus and attention has been taken off of that. And instead, it's, you know, crypto. Um, because that's the, that's the fun part, right? That's the... Um, that's the exciting part. <laughs> no one, no one's excited about trying to solve, you know, like uh, supply chain issues with Web three or you know healthcare or you know. I mean, obviously finance is a big, big one. DeFi is a big one, but there's so many use cases for Web three, and so that's that's what attracts me to it. And that's why I eventually moved into it. Um, you know, so now I, 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 work, I work with a company called Anchor. You guys probably heard of Anchor, um, you know, Web three infrastructure provider. Um, and they, they kind of do a great job of like, it's it, you kind of get a, you can basically experience multi-chain, I think, with Anchor better than with any other company, right? Because they kind of they're engineered to kind of provide like a a, a, a more like a sometimes like I say I like to use words like sampler sampler platter, right? <laughs> Versus where it's difficult to interface with like a lot of different chains. Um, and so that's what attracted me to them. And so that's what I currently do. So I work on Web3 infrastructure um, uh, in terms of like helping scale that. But yeah, that's a little bit about me. Right. And uh, I don't know, you, you kind of have a similar story, it sounds, to, uh, to Justin Bebus. I mean, he started off as an accountant only a few years ago and then noticed similar issues um, with accounting. Uh, scaling up on a larger scale, and that's when he got into blockchain. And he's like, "Wow, this this ledger system works really good." Um, and then, yeah, like you and I have had many discussions on this, but um, as you as you brought up, um, in case a lot of people really aren't into uh, blockchain technology outside of DeFi, because DeFi is kind of what brought us all together here now. Um, yeah, there's a lot of amazing real world use cases and examples for blockchain that can solve so many problems. Um, that was one of the, there was that ADA, that ADA, the uh, Cardano conference, um, like about a year ago now. And, um, that was one part of it that I felt didn't get that much play is these people talking about exactly that, like, uh, government, healthcare, um, educational systems like there's there's so much that blockchain can help absolutely revolutionize uh trim lots of of overhead from as far as money spent on everything like you were saying you guys at your previous situation were spending so much money and time trying to reconcile all the accounts blockchain can can help with with so much of that and uh yeah the potential is is extremely untapped but um but yeah well, let's, and, let's and let me well, and let me, if I can just make a, one point on that. The, the reason why it has to be 
it, the reason why the use cases have to expand into other things besides DeFi is I, I think everybody kind of sees the writing on the wall, which you have in a global economy in which you have a lot of people that are um, in jobs right now that th- those jobs would not exist, you know, had we not had low interest rates and, you know, an expansion of money supplies, right, to, to, to get into kind of more macroeconomics. And so the only way you can transition um, a lot of these, these individuals, like these people in these jobs that, you know, have a ton of domain knowledge around what they're doing, but have zero understanding of blockchain is to, to make the push to, to, to have them be a part of that, you know, or have these organizations finally adopted. And I think that's really where uh, th- there is no Web3 without a- enterprises because you, because that is the engine of, 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 of big economies. And so I think that's where, where you see the adoptions will finally come into play. And you have a, a way also, you have a transition as well from a, from a legacy system uh, with Web2 and you know, centralized finance and centralized healthcare and everything else. You, you, know, you have a, a transition because without the transition, it, it, it cannot be a hard, it cannot be a hard uh, a cold turkey um, transition. No, nobody will ever go for that. And I think that's, that, that's I make that point that that's the reason why it has to be outside of DeFi. Um, it's, it's, it's the stuff that is, is what's going to attract more people to the, to the uh, sector. Right. And uh, I know we, we, we've talked about this before. It's kind of like the, um, the transition to, to the first iPhone, like uh, the personal assistant devices and, or the person, whatever, whatever they were called, the acronym, the PDAs. Oh, the, the PDAs, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then the the compact IQ um, or whatever it was, you know, that thing was they 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 marketed it as a computer in your pocket, and it was essentially an iPhone, but it was ahead of its time, and that possibly could be where we are now with blockchain. And it took about uh, seven years or so. Um, I think you actually uh, laid that math on me before about uh, seven years to till we got to the iPhone, and then it took off in mass adoption. So yeah, there's going to be time to transition, and um, I, I think we're still in the infancy of it all. And it, it's going to get really fun, right. um, and and that's a good that's a good uh, prelude into maybe one of our our first topics and addressing um, it, it's it's addressing finance um, and DeFi, but uh, recently Vitalik. Oh, I, I think that Sunfire actually lost you there. I don't know. If- if it's me, it's a centralized yeah. margin. Like you need to have assets and able to deposit them into contracts and to get loans against them. And it's not really um, a financial system. What I personally hope I see eventually um, as people go down these routes with what, what Vitalik talked about in his paper with soul wallets and soul tokens and non collateralized lending. I think what we're going to end up seeing is essentially the equivalent of credit unions. So we'll have um, essentially credit unions um, on on blockchains. They'll all probably run on their own subnets. They might be semi-permissioned. Um, they'll probably have some controls and such, which would be a good thing. Um, and we'll probably see... Uh, oh, Starlink. Oh, did I drop? Oh, no. Okay, it's back now, though. <laughs> 
All right. Well, anyways, I think one day we'll end up seeing essentially credit unions. Um, it'll be semi-permission, perhaps, or be controls. You'll probably see a whole um, range of that, either from like fully permissioned, very controlled, very centralized, all the way to just freelance craziness. But um, the whole the whole premise of it, where it starts, is we need to we need to be able to. I tag an identity to a wallet and start building um, credit for these wallets. And one concept that Vitalik uh, brought into into discussion in the paper is the concept of soulbound tokens and soulbound wallets. And I'm going to just link this Twitter post and uh, the Twitter post, it's a thread. It has um, a quick synopsis on what that would all look like. Um, there's also a link in there to the actual paper that uh, Vitalik wrote. So you can read that. Um, yeah, it's 34 pages and it's kind of kind of heavy on the technical side. But um, so just really quickly for everyone that doesn't know, maybe Marvler, you can uh, just just briefly describe exactly what soulbound tokens and wallets are and how that would lead to um, non-collateralized lending and opening up like the true power of DeFi. Oh no, did we lose Marvler? Oh, what happened? <laughs> Technical difficulties. All right, well, why do we wait for him to figure that out? <laughs> um, I'll just continue on then. Okay, so essentially, the soulbound tokens and wallets, how it works is, is you would have, um, you'd have like a soulbound wallet. It would essentially be a wallet that is tagged to you. It wouldn't be transferable. It doesn't necessarily mean that your full identity is tagged to it. Uh, it could be, though. And then a soulbound token would essentially be a similar thing, but you'd imagine maybe an NFT and you make it to where the NFT goes to a specific wallet. It's not transferable from that wallet. And then the NFT itself would collect some sort of identity. And then um, it would could then start building credit. And the really cool about this... Um, Okay, he says he's muted for some reason. Uh, hold on, we'll have to... I got an idea. Okay, so... The really cool part about this is then you can... Once you have um, a soulbound wallet or a soulbound token... Hey, can you guys hear me now? Oh, you're back. Okay, I was just, yeah, briefly describing the soulbound token and wallet stuff, so... You get, start to build a, a credit score for the wallet right. or token. And then it's really cool then because you would start building credit that is based off of purely math and algorithms. Because currently, non-collateralized lending through institutions, they use all these, what many people have argued for many years, to be quasi-prejudicial standards, you know, your age, your sex, your race, your education, perhaps even your geographical location, and your current holding of assets. And in a decentralized finance world where perhaps we get kind of these DeFi credit unions going up, it would none of that stuff would matter. The only thing that would matter is your on-chain transactions, you know, and building a good credit score. And it would be based purely off of math 
and algorithms. And I think that'd be an awesome direction to go. Um, once again, similar to a credit union, because then you would end up seeing people use DeFi for actually DeFi. You know, like you have a, a little office building, there's a storm, tree falls down on your front deck. You're not going to get your next big payment until from your clients or whatever you have going until the end of the month. You need to clear up this tree and rebuild the deck ASAP. So then you could just go on. You don't have to have a brick and mortar credit union. You don't have to deal with any kind of loan underwriter or anything. Uh, the overhead would be very low and you just go on there and you get your little like whatever $3,000 loan and you pull that off of the internet world into, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be physical cash, but you then use that to pay for the arborist to clean up the tree, rebuild the deck, end of the month, you repay it back. And then you are paying a little bit of interest on that loan, obviously, to the lenders, because that's how it's going to work. But then you start building a positive credit score for your soulbound wallet or token. So that's essentially the gist of how we would get um, from current DeFi, which is nothing more than than decentralized margin and um, and really just people using it to play the DeFi game more, shorting, longing, uh, doing whatever, into actual decentralized finance with non-collateralized lending. Uh, so that's kind of the gist of of um, Vitalik's paper there. And I personally think that that could be some seriously revolutionary stuff. And I think we definitely need to see that happen. Um, do you have any any little things yeah, you want so, to talk in on to that? So I think, so I think the, the intent is good. But uh, the, the thing is, like, humans cannot be bound to contracts, right? Like, period. They can't be, like, humans cannot be bound to contracts, uh, because humans, the only thing humans can be bound to, like, are, are their family, right? You know, because what's immutable is, you know, they're, they're obviously kinship to their father or mother or whatever it is. But you can't bind a human to a contract. You can only bind what, you're, what you are describing is their, like, willful choices. And so I think where I disagree with Vitalik, his intentions are, um, in terms of, like, you know, being the, how, how do you get into uncollateralized, because like, the, the goal is how do you get into uncollateralized lending? Right. Which is essentially, I think, what, what, you know, and how do you also get into, you know, a lot of things he talks about is like, you know, universities wouldn't have to hire people to um, uh, verify your degree or verify your employment. And so, so you know, what Vitalik is right about is that, you know, the, the actual benefits of, of lowering the transaction costs and lowering the cost in order to uh, verify information or verify ownership or verify transfer of ownership or verify accreditation or verify the um uh, achievement of something whatever it may be like th that part is you know it obviously is, is very valuable but the the problem i have with the soulbound tokens is that you you have to basically give up privacy uh, in exchange for the ability to uh for, to have efficiency with with all the things that you described and um you know, essentially, you would have to like you would have to wear kind of these. You know, like like when they talk about you, you could get like a soulbound token uh, where it has your degree, right? Like an NFT that has your degree. But what about things that you don't want, right? Uh, you would be forced to uh, have this in public, right? Like it, you you could not have privacy. So like there are there is a 
a more like dystopian path that it can go down. And you just think about, you know, if someone was to say to you a hundred years ago, that, hey, uh, we're going to have a group of people, of religious people, in this case, uh, you know, Jews, that are going to wear a badge on their coat and they'll be forced to show it in public. So they will not be able to hide their identity or hide their religion. Um, that's a scary thought. And, and that's the problem I have with soulbound tokens is that, you know, in the wrong hands and, and, you know, under the wrong people, like it can be used for those purposes, even though maybe initially it starts out being used for the, the more positive things. And so the, the premise is that, you know, what is the whole purpose of like DeFi? It, it, is that there, there's no such thing as finance without a transaction. And there's no, such, there's no such thing as a transaction without two willful parties in that transaction. And there's no such thing as a contract without two individuals who agree to the terms of that contract. And, they, and both have to do it by choice because otherwise uh, it, there, it, the whole thing doesn't exist. So, you know, it, it, it's a challenging, it's challenging. You know, I, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, you know what the what the best answer is because you know there will be a lot of ideas that come out of how to do this but what i do know is that if humans cannot be bound to a contract and so when you have the soulbound token you are forcing people to wear um these things in public you know it's almost like a mark where oh okay in order to uh to uh, get this job you have to have this you know nft that shows that you have this degree or you have to be you know, you have to have this entity that shows you're a part of a member of this organization or a citizen of this group. And, and like I said, you go back to once again, it can be it can go down a very dystopian path and be used for things where uh, it, it eventually gets, it becomes where we get to back to the same problem, where then people are discriminated against the same way that they have been, you know, race, religion, sex, you know, uh, uh, whatever their ethnicity is or, or what their origin is. Um, it, it, there's no different, right? Because, but the only difference now is they can't hide it. In in today's world, they can, you know people can hide it, but you know if you look at 100 years ago, uh, they, they made uh, Jewish people wear these badges or these marks on their coat in order to publicly identify them, so that they could be excluded from society. Now, fast forward and look at the soulbound token. You could do the exact same thing. You could literally do the exact same thing if you want to. You say, oh, okay, I, I, you cannot hide your public identity. So that's the problem I have with soulbound tokens is that you trade privacy or this uh, ability to um, offer like kind of uncollateralized lending and credit. There is a way to do it without those things that already exist. Um, because what we're really just, if you think about blockchain, is like it is a public ledger. So how do, how do they verify um, uh, your your ability, like like how is credit based? It's based on your ability to repay debt. Well, the how do they do that now? Well, they basically they they basically took a look at your, they basically take a look at your payment history, and they don't they don't take a look at that payment history based on um, what you say. They they do it based on the the creditors that you have that debt with. They based on what they say, right? And so on a blockchain, a blockchain is a public ledger, and so if you have systems built. It could go through read your payment history. It could read your income. Like you actually wouldn't have to rely on what you say. Like if you think about the way it is now, it's kind of like you go through a credit application. You can lie about your income. You can lie about your expenses. You can lie about your debt. And then you kind of wonder how we got to the housing crisis in the first time, the first time around. And and maybe in some ways how 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 uh, we have a lot of the problems that we have now. 
but like all these things are basically, you know, um, are, are fungible. But if you have a blockchain that is already public and, and, you know, let's say I was like, Hey, Sunfire, I, I want to, I want to, you know, purchase this uh, home from you. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a there's a third party decentralized banking system. You know, may, <laughs> maybe one day Granary or you know Ave or someone will be in that business. And there's a lending pool, and and the investors in that lending pool, which are all just you know people like you and me and everybody else, um, not big banks. You know, they may want to say, well, we need to verify that this person's ability uh, to to repay the loan. You know, based on their income history and based on their um, you know, repayment of other debt, because that's essentially what credit is based on. It's just like, you know, how good is your word to repay that debt? Well, you, you can verify it on the blockchain because if you have made payments towards other debt items on a blockchain, you have a history. It's no different than how we do it now. The only difference is we spend a lot of money with credit agencies that can discriminate, that are essentially controlled, that, that whose algorithms are not open source uh, and that are private versus the ability to, to, to just use the information that's publicly available. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, you know, that's where I think, um, you know, there's this kind of tendency to move away from, you know, integrating Web3 into the systems that, uh, that people have already accepted as being okay with, right? But just to remove some of the flaws of those systems. Uh, and I think th th there's this kind of big push. It's like, oh, we have to completely burn it all down and start over again. Uh, but the, the problem with that is that you may not end up with, you may not end up with anything better. You may end up, you may end up with something worse. And so, uh, you know, and the, so when you think about like that, just that transaction alone, you, you could have a, a DeFi lending protocol with a, you know, kind of a sophisticated set of smart contracts and algorithms that are open source that could verify my history of, Paying loans. So I'm like, oh, wow, this person has paid their loan from their wallet, um, you know, from the wallet that they use. And so the wallet then is what has value, right? That's what has value. Um, the, the, you don't need a soulbound token. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to have a soulbound token. Right. The wallet that I have is, is, is more than enough capable of, of me being able to prove. And I also don't have to give away my privacy because the beauty of, of that wallet is I can have multiple wallets. And that's, a, I think, what kind of ensures that no one can take that privacy away from you. So you, ha you already have the zero knowledge proof, which, you know, Polygon ID, we kind of talked about this a little bit. Like Polygon ID is somehow, it, it, you know, I don't want to say, I don't know if they're pioneering it or, you know, if, if they are, are uh, you know, kind of just naturally progressing either way. But, you know, credit to them. Um, the zero knowledge proof is a way for me to say, you know, hey, I, the, the personal information that belongs to me, you know, social security number, you know, my, my name, my date of birth, and all those other things, I can, I, I can use a zero-knowledge proof in order, to, uh, in order for you to verify, you know, uh, that I own this wallet, right? Which is the key statement, is that you need to verify that I own that wallet, right? Uh, th that's all you need to know, is that, hey, the wallet that is going to be tied to the smart contract, which is tied to this lending protocol, which then allows me to take an NFT, which remember, an NFT is just a transfer of ownership, or at least it was what it should be. I think people kind of conflate that it's, you know, art and digital art. And, and yes, like, so th that's a one use case. But if I have a non-fungible token that says, hey, as long as I agree to the terms of this contract, and like I said before, you know, w w what are people bound to? Well, people, get, people are just 
their actions can be bound to something. So if, if you have an inanimate object, which is a house in this case, and you have a buyer and a seller, you and me, and I agree with this you know, third party, which is a, a DeFi lending protocol, um, and the pool of their, you know, their lending pools, which are made up of people like us, uh, you know, basically saying, we're willing to lend money in this pool. And uh, we, you know, we, we trust in the, the, the open source contracts that Aave or Granary have. And, um, and, and if it's used for the, to help me buy a house uncollateralized, um, and you know, those investors are willing to take that risk because they know that, hey, you know, if I do not fulfill the terms of that agreement, like if I stop paying the mortgage, you're going to then take possession of that house, of that NFT. Like, I, you know, that NFT, you know, then you could basically say, okay, well, that NFT, which is a record of ownership for this house, that basically is no longer valuable. And, and an, an NFT then is assigned um, back to uh, the lending protocol um, of recording the ownership of that house. All, all this can be done today. And all this can be done. You don't have to introduce new things. And that's where I, I disagree with Vitalik is that um, you're getting away from the paradigm of what Web3 was really intended to do, right? It was decentralized, uh, open source, you know, open source healthcare, open source finance, open source government, open source everything. But it was not designed to open source people. And it was not designed to open source someone's identity or, and, and forcibly do that. Because a blockchain is a forcible uh, um, disclosure of transactions, right? And, and that's what transparency is. Um, but you don't need to force you don't need to force people to disclose their identity or parts of their identity or parts of who they are that could be used against them because you will end up with the exact same thing that we have, we tried to get away from hundred years ago. So that's right. my view on it. No, that was all good, and and you definitely transitioned into the Polygon ID stuff. I was going to drag that out a little more and make and make King wait because he seems really excited to to, to hear about that, but. Um, We'll get into that in a second. Um, I just wanted to say really quick, because you're talking, you used um, the sale of a house, for example, and that's something that I have thought about many times is essentially like a title company having their own subnet. And then literally everything that a title, a modern title company does could all be done uh, with distributed ledger technology, with their own little subnet. And yeah, it could all be done in the exact ways you just described. And um, I'm going to drop another link here. So uh, we talked about these things because you talked about like there's going to be a pool of lenders. And um, here's an example that um, Ergo put out. And um, it's just a really quick little overview. Let me make sure I have the right link. Yeah. So the let's the the lending, the lending exchange trading system. And. Uh, an example of that, it could start off really small. Like, let's say you have a family and mom and dad pool money into a little pool that then the the children of their family could then draw an allowance off of um, so much. Um, they can set the parameters of that. They could even set up uh, some script. Like, people could make fun little dashboards, interactive dashboards with, with the bot running a script in the background. And you can have it automated. Um, I mean, there's already lots of systems set up like that, like Gelato, I think you could use for that. And um, 
they would just, you know, like every month dump some money into this account, um, into this essentially smart contract, which then the children with their wallets could then pull money off of for an allowance. You scale that up a little bigger. Let's say you do have a business with a brick and mortar and they have petty cash. You know, once again, same thing. Employer could just set it up all automated. They, they keep a certain, they float a certain amount of money in the petty cash contract slash wallet. And then the employees can just draw off of that and repay it. It would all be there. Uh, you know, modern petty cash. Like I remember my, my mom was working in a large, um, in a large, uh, healthcare finance office. Um, it was just literally cash, you know, and like it was all in a trust system. Um, and then so from there, we scale it up even further and we could get to, um, what I was saying would essentially be a credit union. And then like you were saying, a pool of lenders. And that's kind of how we would, we would get there. We'd have to start small. Like you said, it wouldn't just be this cold Turkey immediate transition. It would have to be this slow transition to it. And really it's, it's going to be about building up trust, getting exposure. Um, I think current DeFi did a really good job of getting exposure to, to crypto. We just need to work on the, the education, you know, everything we're talking about now, this is messaging. I feel would be very, beneficial to get out to everyone um so moving on to that because you kind of started getting into the polygon id and the the super big benefits of zero knowledge proofs so uh well, I don't really quickly because I feel like I kind of understand the concepts of zero knowledge proofs and, and you basically kind of described it. It's essentially how you identify someone or something without directly identifying it. It's kind of um I guess a, a roundabout way using circumstantial evidence to to arrive to the proper conclusion. However, um, why don't you, if you would mind, just in case people don't know, give a really quick, um, you know, zero knowledge proofs for dummies. And then after that, maybe transition into a polygon ID and everything going on there. Because if people didn't notice in this last pump, Everything kind of pumped a little bit, but Matic really pumped. And that was because of the uh, publication of Polygon ID happening. And everyone's really excited about that and it's really cool. So, yeah, if you would please maybe just start off with um, a quick overview of zero knowledge proofs, what they are, how they work. Just really quick. Let's not get too deep. And then transition then to Polygon ID. Maybe you can describe again kind of like um, briefly what it is. I'll link uh, the synopsis tweet as well and then uh let us know what you think about polygon id and uh we can take it from there oh man do you disconnect again man uh other people have had problems with the same thing with discord for some reason um i bet it's because you're logged into discord on your phone and your computer um so yeah the only <laughs> the solution is is you have to leave and then come back um i've seen this several times before but yeah, it's most likely because you're on you're on the phone and the computer at the same time. All right, I'll manually disconnect them, and then you're gonna have to come back. There you go. And ta-da! All right, did you hear everything I was just saying? Yeah. No, so the thing is, I can the thing is, it was weird. Is I can hear you guys 100% perfectly. I can hear you 100% perfectly, and and so like nothing changes. But for some reason, you guys can't hear me. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's weird, but, but I can hear you guys perfectly. Like, like no, you know, except for that one little part where, like, the when you guys when you first started off with the Starlight thing, or when you talk about when you started off originally, and like you cut out for a little bit. But I can hear you guys perfectly. Um, so yeah, so I guess before I get, you know, I guess before I get <laughs> cut out, cut off again, let me let me 
uh, answer your question. So, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. So as far as the zero knowledge proof, I, yeah, just kind of from a very simple way of looking at it. Um, let me explain how it's done now, and, and then that way I can explain what the difference is. So, so there's better context. So right now, and I'm going to go kind of back to the, the mortgage or back to the lending process. So right now, if you want to take a loan to buy whatever, home, car, whatever it is, you know, this, the same thing applies, you know, or you have to provide your, your, uh, your name, your social security number, um, address, um, you know, contact information, uh, you know, bank account. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to provide, right? So there's a whole slew of information. The, how that is typically provided is, you know, you give it to uh, 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 a mortgage, uh, you know, not underwriter, but like kind of the the uh, uh, the mortgage officer or the the representative who's who's handling your loan. Uh, sometimes you send that over email. Uh, sometimes you write that down on paper, you give it to them. Sometimes you fill it out on a, on a web form, and uh, and then and you know, and then that's submitted, and that's about it. But but in general, like you you have to provide all this information so a you have to do it over and over and over again right uh and, and what a lot of times what happens is especially like in the lending industry there's multiple parties involved right you know so you have the title company you have the appraisal company you have the uh the, the lender you have of course the seller the realtors i mean the brokers you know the investors which fannie mae and freddie mac typically uh you have a lot of different people and so your information is literally you know, uh, I guess distributed to way more uh, stakeholders or to parties than, than most people probably realize. And so, um, a you know, you, you the, the, there's a potential for for I think the potential that I didn't need to have is much higher for the, the potential for for um, you, you know a breach you know someone's you know data source or you know uh, internal databases being breached uh, and then your data getting hacked or something is is, is higher. And so. Um, what is zero, you know, so, so you kind of have to give everything, right? Uh, but you don't necessarily know if the person you're giving it to or the company you're giving it to is able to safeguard it. And I say the word able to because I, I, I work in, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of database development, data warehouse, you know, I work in, in, in software development now. And I, I can tell you, it is very easy for a company to uh, misplace data. It is very easy for them to do that. It's a very, very easy for, you know, we, we see that even happen in Web3, you know, right? Where, you know, protocols publish the, you know, some keys to uh, their, their contracts in GitHub and not realize it. And then boom, you know, the, the protocol gets exploited. And so what a zero knowledge proof does is it says, okay, uh, let's say, you know, Sunfire, you are the lender and you're like, okay, well, I know that this loan uh, is is you know is is uh, I'm giving this loan to Marveler and there uh, I have to verify uh, the information um, that is going to be on this loan that you know it's assigned to Marveler and you know um, these are the terms and all these other things. But and and for the purpose of that you know recording that ownership you know that my information has to be uh, in there at least what is necessary right to to, to because I have I have possession of that object in this case at home. But but you individually, Sunfire, I don't, you know, like I, I you know, you might be a, a, a great person with this, you know, lending company. You may not be a great person, right? And 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 or the some people that you work with may, may not be great people who have access to that data as well, um, or maybe careless, negligent, whatever you want to be. So so 
if you just, in this case, you're like, hey, I, I know that these are the pieces of information that have to go on to this loan. But rather than you giving me that information, you just have to basically verify that, that I, you know, I am the, the, that person or the information that has to go on that loan. You know, I, I uh, um, am the owner of that information, right? So what ends up happening is there's, there's a, and I, without getting too technical, essentially there's a, a verifiable proof, which is a mathematical kind of cryptographic uh, process in which an algorithm can then verify, can match up the information without you actually ever seeing the information in plain text. And so um, you can have an algorithm that comes back and says, we have verified the social security, the, the address, you know, the email, phone number, whatever it is, all the pieces of information that this person owns, that is their data, um, but we're not going to actually tell you what those in pieces of information are. What we can tell you is that we have 100% mathematically verified it, because if you take all that information and you encrypt that, right, and you have a public key and I have a private key, and now those two pairs match up, Right. But my private key is derived from the information I own, which you don't have. And the public key is the information that is going to be stored on that contract, which is, is essentially what is going to be transparent on a blockchain. Well, then all of a sudden now, like th there is uh, only one person who can identify with that with that public key. Right. That's the public, you know, the private public key pair. So zero knowledge proofs essentially are in a way like, you know, t take all your private data and all your personal data and everything that, that you own. Remember, you own the data. Nobody owns it. Nobody should, except for you. And assign kind of a private key, public key pair that you're like, this pair cannot work. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, if, if this data doesn't match, right? And so that's in a kind of a nutshell. That's from a technical perspective. You know, I, I'm not going to say that I know, like, how does it work on the inner workings, behind, you know, underneath the scenes of that. But that's in a nutshell, kind of the concept to kind of relate it back to what people maybe may understand with like private keys and public keys and stuff like that. But then if you think about it, we use private keys and public keys to, uh, you know, to, to assign things, right? Or we sign transactions. So, well, guess what happened? I just, now I can sign that loan agreement with a private key, but that private key now uh, you can incorporate a zero, you know, zero knowledge proof where it's like, okay, well, all this information is kind of, inside of that private key um, that belongs to this person, right? Um, and so I don't ever have to expose that. And, and, and the thing is, we can do that today. You know, it's, that, that's the crazy part. We can do, literally do it today. It's, there's nothing that stops us from doing it. Um, and you look at the mortgage industry, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think it's Chase or Wells Fargo or something like, you know, by 2024, you know, Fannie Mae wants to move the entire mortgage application process to digital, 100% digital. Because um, they they already they already start to re they already they already know that a it's too expensive to do the, the the process how it's done now and you know there's a lot of uh, um, issues with data privacy and um, just people's information you know uh, having it constantly being given out uh, and then in be in possession of these companies that are doing these loans so that that's kind of I guess the DKP uh, in a nutshell and. Then you talked about the, I guess, what, in, sorry, I apologize. So your next, the next question was about Polygon ID or about, uh, what was the next one? 
Right. So I was asking, and 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 you definitely went into uh, you went into a pretty pretty good explanation. But I was saying just a, a brief explanation of what zero knowledge proofs are and and kind of how they work in case people didn't know. Which I think you I think you covered that well enough. And then um, I dropped the link for for Polygon ID. Um, a little synopsis uh, tweet from from the official Polygon uh, Twitter. And um, that thread just kind of gives you um, a brief little overview of it. If people want to dig into it deeper, they can. So then um, my second question was um, like, yeah, what do you think about Polygon ID and what they're proposing as far as um, the zero knowledge proofs for identity, building credit for a wallet? And then um, also one thing in that little tweet thread that they talk about, I think is really cool. Something we also just talked about is privacy and being able to control your own privacy in Web3. And I, I, I don't think that um, on that tweet they talk about this. I think I read this somewhere else, but this really cool idea of controlling all of your own data. One, one day, we're not there yet, but when we make a full transition from Web2 to Web3, you can then control and gatekeep all of your own data because if we're using these zero knowledge proof systems for identity then you can elect what data of yours gets shared with what um, marketing and advertising companies that want that data and essentially then you could get paid for sharing your own data and of course there will be like middleman companies that are set up to facilitate all of this and make it easier um, and they'll take a cut off it I'm sure but um so as far as what polygon id is proposing as far as the zero knowledge proof identity for a wallet building credit for a wallet and then also um user privacy in web3 um what what do you think about all that and uh give us your give us your your take on it oh see it's every time every time he stops talking there's something seriously wrong with discord right now uh all right, let's go. Let's go through. Let's, let's go through it again. <laughs> we'll get this down to where we can just do it. We'll just anticipate that Discord's going to uh, screw with you. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to do is every time I have to answer, I'm going to leave and then come back. <laughs> yeah. So, well, this uh, is probably going to be the last time. We're we're at the hour mark, and I think we're at the the last talk on ID. So hopefully you heard everything I just said there. And then after this, we can do an open Q&A uh, for anyone that wanted tips and tricks for a Web 2 developer going into Web 3. But um, our last main topic is is this Polygon ID. And, and again, hopefully you heard everything I said. So take it away. Right. So, um, and, and I just make sure you guys can hear me, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. All right. So the, the, the Polygon ID... Um, What's nice around that? What's nice about that is that it, it, you know, at least, obviously, just based on what, what initially they, I haven't gone into the full scope of the details of it, but based on just the surface, you know, the paradigm is that it is really focused around the wallet, right? And so it goes back to this: hey, you know, we are going to to create identity around a wallet, right? You own that wallet because you own your private keys. Um, the night, you know, the, the nice thing about Polygon ID, and this is, I think, another kind of, uh, you know, I guess issue I take with the Soulbound token is that what happens if you lose your private keys? Like, I guess, you know, like you would lose your soul, right? Like, it, it's kind of crazy because it's like, you know, you have this one token and then, well, if you lose your private keys or they get stolen, then, you know, that there's a lot of issues with that. The, um, the thing with Polygon ID is that, you know, 
and I'm going to use an analogy here that maybe people, maybe some people relate to. So if you think about like World of Warcraft, right? There was a period of time, and some people may remember World of Warcraft, where you would level up this account all the way up to like level 60 or I don't know what, what 80 or well, I don't even know what it's at now. But um, and then you would sell that account for thousands of dollars, right? Because that that account had so much merit and so much value, and that account had access to so many things. You know, in terms of uh, raids and uh, new items and stuff like that, because of all the merit of that account. But the thing about that account is that, like, you know, if if you no longer want that account, right, uh, or let's say that account got banned from stuff in World of Warcraft, you could just start a whole new account, right? And so, you know, it kind of goes back to the whole concept of like humans cannot be bound to a contract. You know, just just the wallet or the activities that they use. Um, uh, with that system. So what Polygon ID does in a sense is that it focuses on the wallet, right? And it focuses around the information that the, the, the you know, the owner's information, the person's information tied to that wallet. So what it would allow you to do is have multiple wallets, right? So you might decide I have one wallet uh, and this is for my kind of more like uh, social or um, uh, personal, like, like non-financial related stuff. Right. It's the same thing. People have, you know, different accounts. Some people have a checking account and a savings account. Sometimes they have multiple accounts with different banks. So it's not any different. Um, and, you know, each of those accounts have identity associated with it. So in this case, what Polygon is doing is, is essentially with, with that zero knowledge proof is they're, ta- they're tying the information identity of the owner to that wallet. But you could have multiple wallets that have that same information and it would provide flexibility for individuals to, um, Say, okay, well, rather than just having one specific wallet, I can have this wallet, which kind of builds up my credit, right? Because it, once again, the blockchain is a transparent ledger. So, you know, all of the stuff that I'm doing, I'm building up credit on this wallet. And when I apply for loans, I'm using this wallet. And then my personal information is, is obviously tied to that, but also at the same time, not, you know, provided because I'm using the zero knowledge proof. So I still maintain my privacy. But at the same time, you know, if, if, um, let's say, you know, a situation happens in which you're like, you know, I have this other wallet that, um, you know, um, someone else is using in my family. And so I, and I, and this, so I'm kind of going back to let's thing. That's why I wanted to talk about Polygon ID and let's, you have a lot of families out there that, uh, sometimes, you know, like, you know, like the teenagers have to work because, you know, maybe a, a, a parent is disabled or a family may, or maybe they, they need to bring in more income to help support the family. You see this in a lot of countries, I think, outside of the U.S., uh, maybe, maybe some in the U.S. Um, you could have, you know, someone in the family that is doing things that contribute to the family, like the family wallet, right? So now you could have an ID of a, of a family wallet. Right. And maybe there are uh, things such as school. So now you could you could use that wallet, which has uh, maybe transactions that are not even financially related. But you have maybe transactions that are related to, um, you know, school or education. And you have a, you, you can establish a different algorithm of quote unquote credit history or whatever that's defined as. But then you have a different wallet that, has to, that deals with lending. So the reason I say that is because it would give each industry flexibility to structure the way that they manage identity and how they verify identity based on the application of what they're trying to, to achieve, right? So like in this case, if you're trying to buy a house and you're 
you're trying to uh, get a loan, that process is very is much more complex and much different than if somebody in this case is trying to get a student loan. Right. And if you think about it prior to b- before the government took over student lending, and I, think, I mean, the government in the United States, you know, a lot of times you had to have your parents co-sign on a loan. Right. So now take that into account. OK, you have a student 18 years old. Their wallet has nothing. Right. They have no credit history on their wallet. Right. Which is the very reason why the bank is like, hey, you have to co-sign your parents have to co-sign on this loan right, to kind of help guarantee uh, that, you know, that this loan will be repaid. So now you can have the identity of two different wallets um, used in the same transaction without yeah. actually having to, to disclose any of that information um, for either wallet. That's part of the reason why um, Polygon ID is pretty exciting for, for that purpose is because it, it focuses around identity attached to the wallet. Yeah, and that's bundling. What you just talked about is essentially bundling, which that could scale up into so many really awesome and cool things. Once again, going right. back to a credit union. I mean, and it could, we, we see this all the time in, all the time in real life anyways, where like a bunch of buddies maybe want to go in on something, you know? Yep. Um, it, it would make that really cool clubs. You could have different clubs and it, it could be like school clubs even. Like, let's say the chess club wants you know, t-shirts together or something. I mean, that's kind of a lame example, but um, it just is an example of how uh, the bundling concept could, could scale up and be used in so many awesome and cool ways. Um, you, you, you talked really quick there about um, education, and I know you, you said something to me before where you, you're talking about education with this kind of stuff, and I don't know if we finished the conversation, so I would really like to know... Um, how that all can transition into revolutionizing the education industry as well, and what your thoughts about all that were. <laughs> Gosh darn Discord. There we go. Yeah, so it's almost like a routine now. As soon as you stop, I was like, all right, leave. Um, so, yeah, so the, the um, so education, yeah, I, know, I remember we had this conversation. So education is, is very interesting because uh, this kind of gets into how to hedge inflation uh, in education. Oh, interesting. So, you know, uh, we talked about subnets. Uh, and, I, and I apologize if I'm getting off the, the, the premise of what your question was. I, I, uh, I may have I missed it because I, I, I may have dropped off. But um, the, in terms of like, the, you know, you talk about the bundling, right? And you talk about like, you know, people getting together for clubs and groups and investments. Well, when it comes to education, you know, like you have... Um, and you have kind of this concept with, with, with identity and zero knowledge proofs where you can have individuals who go to different universities. I'm, I'm going to actually approach this from two different perspectives. What, so from the perspective of like a group of individuals, they could all come together and um, still maintain their anonymity and privacy uh, and data privacy. But, you know, collaborate with other people within their own university without, you know, in, in, in you know, but also outside of the university. Um, it's like you said, they, they could form investment clubs. You know, that was actually something originally that, that uh, I wanted to do. It was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a, like a fun little project to do outside of, uh, of work was, you know, it's like, oh, you know, investment clubs because they give people greater purchasing power. Uh, and then you could you could establish, you know, like health insurance uh, pools, uh, like co-ops, you know, for people that don't have corporate health care. Um, 
that's a different topic. But the, uh, you, 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 you can basically use that zero-knowledge proof, that identity, within these, these you know, individual-to-individual clubs, right? So it's not even just a, not even just a, a transaction between a, a company or an entity and an individual. But it could also be like the, the transactions uh, among groups of people. And then you could even establish an identity for that group, right? Because, you, you know, from a scalability perspective, if you have a group of individuals uh, and the group of individuals have already identified themselves uh, as all being, you know, those are the people that are supposed to be there and they, they use zero knowledge proofs to do that. Now you can establish a zero knowledge proof for that, like a DAO, for example, right? Um, and DAOs could do zero knowledge proof with other DAOs. And so that's how you create scalability as well, because you no longer have to do it at the granular level, right? Because that, that's been satisfied. Because if you think about that's how the world operates, is that, you know, small groups of people form into, uh, or, or individuals form into smaller groups, those smaller groups, you know, uh, transact or interact with other groups, and then those bigger groups interact with other groups, right? You know, from every facet of life. So that's what's exciting about the, the capabilities of it um, and, and, and how you could um, um, be able to scale up identity, right? Versus the soul bound token. From a hedge, uh, from an inflation hedge as well, you can also have groups, and you think of this from like a parent perspective, right? So you, you could have groups of parents who, let's say you have universities one day that say, listen, if we can fill up a college classroom, right, because they have to pay a professor a salary, and that salary's professor is dependent, uh, you know, the, the cost of, that, that salary's professor, or excuse, excuse me, that professor's salary is, is, is their salary, right? But the cost of education is cheaper per student the more students the professor can teach. So, you know, one of the biggest problems with college is that you look at a lot of uh, there's a lot of empty classrooms. Right. And so you have a lot of um, you have a kind of inefficiency in how education is, is grouped together. So you could have education in the future like university and say, hey, if we can get a group of individuals, in this case, students, and um, they're all now like, you know, they're verified for a class. So they're all in a group as a class. And now we've established this kind of zero knowledge proof. And also they protect their privacy because maybe someone wants to take a topic <laughs> or maybe someone wants to take a class that, you know, is maybe not very popular or, or, or politically unpopular. And uh, so they don't want to, you know, be, you know, ridiculed for that or whatever. Um, a, you know, you, you protect privacy, but B, you could also then um, make it so that the cost, you could have a group that says, hey, listen, the cost of the cost of all these students, uh, if you want to take this class, you know, we have this kind of group that you can join and, and this is what the cost per student will be. So you could actually make education more efficient in terms of scalable by going back to the group level, right? Because all education is, is get a group of students and a class of students together. The more people you can get into that class, the cheaper, per, you know, the cost per student. You, that's how you scale it. Um, the same thing with health insurance and all those other things. But that's the uh, that's what I think the exciting thing about Polygon ideas. It doesn't, you know, if we think about everything we just talked about, the word crypto, like our tokens, is not even mentioned, right? And so it's just the, the that's I think the part of Web three. That's we're moving into that phase where where the crypto part's the exciting part. Uh, but, but there's a lot more uh, that can be done. So I, that's why I like Polygon. The Polygon idea, on its surface, the Polygon idea is very exciting. We'll, you know, we'll see if, you know, obviously uh, how, it, how it is architected and how it's built out. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's kind of explain the, the value 
with groups and stuff like that. I don't know. Did that answer your question? I'm sorry. I totally lost the <laughs> topic of what the question was. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't have to be a topic, you know. We're, 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 we're going to do whatever we want here. <laughs> right. All right. Well, yeah, we're at uh, an hour 15. Is there, is there anything else that you want to just toss in there uh, for fun? Oh, man. Does Discord really, it really, you stop talking for literally 30 seconds and that's it, and then it cuts you off? Oh, my God. All right. So, yeah, is there, uh, is there anything else you want to just toss in there just for fun, uh, wrapping it up? Any uh, final, final thoughts? Yeah. Oh, so I we, think, got, uh, we got some questions, too. We got some oh, questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We'll those yeah, as well. Let's do that first. Uh, let's, do, let's do that first. Yeah. So, Neko King wants to know, uh, what are you currently working on? Yeah, so I'm working on uh, Web3. Oh, I got a little echo. So I'm working on some uh, Web3 infrastructure service layer stuff. So I'm working on more of, of helping to scale the infrastructure. You know, I, I, it's interesting. And this is, I think, I'm going to kind of try to answer this question, but also like kind of give tips for like Web2 developers getting into Web3. Um, the, um, the biggest problem, you know, we talked about earlier, the biggest problem in blockchain right now is that, you know, it's, it's the scaling part, right? And the service layer within uh, Web3 is, part, is kind of the part that's still uh, kind of undefined and, and still not fully like developed out. So I'm working on helping build that out, you know, um, right now. And um, so, so that obviously more people and, and more individuals can, you know, can access and, and, and be a part of Web3. Because all, all these concepts that we talked about over this last hour are great, but the infrastructure has to be there and the service layers have to be there in place in order for those things to, to, to uh, carry out or to, or to come to fruition. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on. Uh, not working on any smart contract stuff. I, originally, that's the part that I got really you know, excited about in Web3 and you know, in terms of you know, deploying smart contracts and for, for DApps and, and, de- and decentralized apps in general and, and, you know, and, and the, kind of the, the client side uh, uh, of, this, of this equation. But I'm working more on the server side right now. And that's what I'm working on. And I, and I would say for any Web2 developer transition into Web3, you know, it, 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 what's difficult to first understand, if you try to come from the client side and you, you, and you try to go right into smart contracts and then go right into, into decentralized apps, but you worked in Web2 uh, primarily where like everything's very server-based and, uh, you know, from an enterprise perspective, like, you know, everything's kind of very vertically driven. Um, it's, hard, it's a little bit harder to kind of grasp. And so actually going from the server side this time around, it's like, oh, okay, like I, I, I kind of get it now. Like I'm like, oh, okay, everything's just a JSON RPC call <laughs> or a gRPC. <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, that's all it is. But uh, for, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. And for, for Web2 developers, like, if you were to just literally take Postman, you know, for those who understand what, what, what that is, uh, just grab a, just grab a, uh, uh, you know, basically an API client and um, go through and just look up what all the JSON RPC functions are for uh, calling EVM you know, or calling Ethereum contracts, right? And just play around with that. And because I think what the challenge is, if you can understand that the actual function calls are in the body, the request body of an API, a JSON RPC call or gRPC, if, 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 you're, if you're using that, um, you know, it'll help kind of transition. Because a lot of Web2, a lot of Web2 developers are, are in the REST API. Uh, and unfortunately, maybe even some of the SOAP API, if you want to really go back. Um, 
and so they kind of look at things in terms of like how things are done through REST API, SOAP API, you know, SFTP, uh, you know, SQL databases, relational databases. And so it's, it's very, you know, the, the interface, the service layers and the interface methods within Web2, what I've noticed are really around, AP, you know, REST API and, and um, you know, SFTP and flat file transfers and some of these other uh, data transfer mechanisms where is in Web3, it's like JSON RPC. You know, you basically, you learn Ethereum calls and uh, if you can learn how to, how the structure of those bodies are, uh, those request bodies, then you, you, you know, you, you kind of then it's easy to figure out the rest from there. If you're going to, you know, so rather than just trying to go right into the smart contract, that was my problem. I went into the smart contract and then I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm learning solidity and, you know, I, I can code solidity, but I was like, I don't really actually know how to integrate this thing <laughs> with anything. Uh, so that would be my advice is like, go to the smart contracts last, focus on the interface, uh, you know, like how you're going to interface with that, um, with that contract from the from the uh, JSON RPC side, that's that would be my my recommendation. So I don't think King was was satisfied with that. He wants to know what does it mean to scale Web three infrastructure, and what what exactly are you working on scaling what parts? Wow, yeah, Discord dropped you again. This is so silly. We have to figure we have to figure this bug out. This is uh this is getting silly. But anyways, yeah, uh, King wants to know. What does it mean when you say that you're scaling Web3 infrastructure and scaling what exactly? Like, what exactly are you doing? He wants specifics. Yeah, I can't, well, because I work for a company, I can't go into the specifics, right, just to be, just to be fair. But what, what ultimately, I think what, every, what the challenge is for every uh, Web3 developer is that, you know, the, the biggest problem they run into is that they, um, there's, all these, there's all these different requests that come in Right to, to the nodes, uh, you know, ETH get logs is a is obviously one of the biggest one of the biggest ones that comes in. Um, you know, get balance all this stuff. So so you have a, a flood of, of of queries, and I use the word query. Like so, the the part that is difficult to scale right now is the query side of this equation, right? Which is when you have read only, uh, we have a read only uh, requests that are coming in and they're hitting that node. Like it's very, very like it's very taxing on those nodes, and so what that does is it kind of then it, it it makes it more difficult for for the network to scale up, you know, because you need you know you still you still have to have transactions coming in, right? You have blocks that are you know, you know processed every you know a second, every two seconds, every fifteen seconds, depending on what chain you're on, and so um, scaling, you know. You know, if you look at like traditional database structure, you know, when you have OLTP engines and you have OLAP engines, right? There, there are, there is a need to to create, you know, indexing services and create service layers where it's easy to query, you know, historical data without taxing the node itself. Uh, that is really primarily engineered to capture transactions, right? Not to to just you know where you're trying to query the last ten thousand blocks, or whatever. And I think that's part of the challenge right now is separating those two. That's what I'm working on specifically. Uh, is um, you know working on you know separate those two, um, and so you can you know instead of being able to handle you know a billion calls or two billion calls, one day you can handle a hundred billion calls, uh, and that's I think where where uh, the infrastructure is is uh, the, the challenge right now is is if you know you solve those two people, you have an OLAP use case uh, for querying, and you have an OLTP use case right for recording new data. Um, so I, don't, I mean, I, hopefully that answers this question. That's maybe trying to be more specific, but uh, I don't know if that answers this question. 
Nah, it's probably good enough. I mean, he he might he might just be trying to troll you for uh, some recruitment. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I I just you know I don't want to go into to obviously specifics of because I've never worked for a company, but uh, the actual industry challenge is to separate the 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 queries. Right, if you can separate the queries that are read-only from the what some people may understand as crud ops, right, which is uh, which is a term for create, read, update, delete. But you can separate that from like the actual transaction. Uh, the, the node is, is remember the node has to achieve consensus, and so the node has to be able to to get up to it has to be able to get all the way up to the latest block, right? Because so they can achieve consensus. But if it's bogged down with too many queries. Because everybody's doing an ETH get log <laughs> call, and they're not, and then they're not storing that in a in a staged database or staged data repository in order to then, you know, uh, uh, kind of offload that data and and offload it off the node. Then you you know you're going to have a, a harder time these nodes catching up to the latest block, right? Which is going to make it harder to, to achieve consensus, and and that's also then what ha- is the problem with decentralization, where the more nodes you have. Um, you know, if you start to kind of delegate out like, okay, these nodes are archive nodes or these nodes are not archive nodes, and, and you, you kind of can start to separate the read-only from the write requests, then uh, you have a more scalable, you have a chance of scaling versus just kind of this scattershot approach of, uh, you know, it was funny, there was one, uh, there, was a, there was a protocol, Sunfire, you remember, it was a Geist, right? You know, and they, uh, I remember they, they were like, their, their daily stats they were they were basically trying to read like ten thousand blocks at a time to just calculate daily stats. I'm like, wow, that's a like that's a really resource intensive method. You're just trying to you're literally just calling the node over like over and over and over again. Um, it, it was it was funny, you know. To uh, so th- th- there should there 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 are easier ways to do that, and I think the industry is moving towards that. It, you know, it, it, this is not like a problem that. Uh, is going to be solved overnight, and there's going to be a lot of ways to solve it. But that, that's the I think the industry is moving in that direction. They they have the industry I think has has solved the problem of how to scale, you know, recording transactions quickly. You know, Phantom I think is 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 you know really great at like that time to finality and and, and saying hey listen you know we're the time to finality is within a second you know maybe a couple seconds now, but um, the ability to store the transaction. And, and, and you know, obviously, you know, generate those new blocks is very fast. But the that is what they've achieved, right? That's what many blockchains have achieved. But no blockchain has been able to say, hey, do you want to go through and pull the, the entire history uh, of blocks or of logs from a node? Good luck. <laughs> you know, you might be waiting a while if you're going to try to do that uh, on, a, on a big scale. So that, that's, what I think, where we're at. So the interest, and then obviously, that, you know, that problem will be solved as well. So that's the part that I'm, you know, coming into. Uh, and, and I'm very grateful that, uh, you know, kind of the, the people that have built the, the, OLT, the OLTP engines, right, these transaction processing engines, these blockchains, uh, you know, th- those are very efficient and the interfaces are very, you know, obviously are very well defined. So uh, it makes it easy for someone like me, came from Web2, to kind of jump in on the infrastructure side of things. Yeah, didn't you make a, a dashboard for the stats for guys back in the day? Like on your own, just for fun? Yeah, yeah, just for, I did it for fun. It was, and, and I, so, I, yeah, I was, and I was, you know, and I kind of, and the, the, my biggest thing, it was like almost like kind of an audit as well, because you just wanted to make sure that, you know, there's like, hey, 
uh, not to say that the data, the data they have is inaccurate. I'm not saying that, but it's like, you know, you're like, hey, you know, if I want to be able to recreate this. And that's a, it's a cool thing, too, because, um, you, you know, you want those kind of independent, like, audits. And, and you want the, the uh, you, want, you really want, like, the ability for people to do that. I think that's a great way if someone's trying to get into Web3 and they're like, they don't really know where to start. You know, just, you know, try to focus on the read-only side of it. Like, hey, you know, can I read contract data and can I do that efficiently? And so for me, yeah, I had, I had a feed that was running like every 15 minutes that would uh, pull uh, the stats. Uh, it was a lot. It was a lot of data, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, then I was trying to, then trying to match up to, up to like hourly price uh, or 15-minute or price feeds from like FTX. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I need to get what the, I need to, I need to get what the price of the actual like token is. Because, you know, in crypto, it's like, you know, 12 hours, the token can be worth half of what it was. So it's like in order to get an accurate representation of like the actual fees that have been captured, like, you know, I need to actually get the, you know, an FTX API feed plugging right into this, these uh, Web3 calls. Um, and then, you know, pushing that into a database. And then, and then I was streaming that, I was streaming that into a dashboard, you know, Power BI, which, which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cool, you know, kind of, it's like a tableau, kind of a cool dashboard thing, but it was, it was cool. It was, it, it visualized it as well too, you know, cause it's like blockchain data, uh, you don't see a lot of visualization, data visualization on blockchain, but it, it's so easy to do if, you know, if it's architected right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I did. It was fun. It was, and it, it helped me really kind of understand how to read logs like i didn't really and it also made me really appreciate like okay like reading log data on contracts like those objects can get really big yeah um, they can get really big really fast and you're like oh man like you know it, this can melt your hard drive um <laughs> if you know but that you know that's where you start using uh big data techniques to store data uh you know i don't know if i had this conversation with you or someone else but there's you know it, it's interesting how there's there's a lot of ways to store blockchain data off chain, you know, probably one tenth of the size or, or one twentieth of the size, uh, you know, with surrogate keys and, and uh, star schema or snowflake schema configurations. But that's a, that's a different topic. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, that was, it's a fun, I, and I would encourage people to do that. It's, you know, just take something, just go find a, a um, you know, uh, just go, go find a DAP that you really like, you know, or you like the concept of and, just see if you can kind of, you know, build out something um, that matches the data that's on there, right? You know, so maybe if you just want to go read the, the you, you, you go to, um, you know, uh, Reaper Farms or whatever that, that you know, they, they do all the, uh, they're like kind of like the aggregator, the DEX aggregator or whatever. Um, and, you know, you go read the, um, like, read the contracts and say, okay, can I like kind of find a way to read the log data to match the values of these TDLs? Uh, and it'll help you learn. Uh, um, from that side of things, so I, I think it's, 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 that's a great way for people to do a start. And you'll and you'll also like it'll teach you how to be efficient too, because it's like it, it's tough to read that data if you want to read it in mass, uh, and you're trying to do it with a, a laptop. You know, you don't have a big server, so you you learn how to be very efficient very quickly. Well, I hope that answers King's question in a in a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah, I try. I try. I'm trying to be as detailed as possible. You know, without getting without getting myself into trouble. I mean, essentially, you're just trying to efficientize all of the read-only and call stuff. Yeah, and you have to. I mean, if you think about it, like, block, like blockchain data, and especially in the world of DeFi, uh, yeah, blockchain, of course, is like, you know, uh, I mean, Ethereum, whatever you want to call it, you know, in terms of, or, you know, maybe Bitcoin. Blockchain data in general is like less than a decade old, right? And uh, I would actually argue that 
the real data, which is, you know, really kind of 2020 and on, maybe 2021 and on, because uh, that's where you really see the movement in, in, in uh, crypto. You know, the data I would argue to say is probably about a year old that's relevant, the relevant data. So you're like, okay, if you're struggling to read data that's a year old, what about five years? You know, which, which A, the adoption will be way bigger. B, you're going to have uh, now, you know, a, a much longer chain. Uh, you know, you'll get to a point where you won't be able to read that. And so, uh, you, like, you have to solve it. Like, you have to solve it. I think that's, the, that's why uh, enterprises, I actually believe a lot of reasons why enterprises are hesitant is because the enterprises have to store data for a minimum, I think of seven years or eight years, you think about a lot of compliance and a lot of legal regulations, you know, because of audits and tax audits. And I, I'm speaking in the terms of the U.S. So for, for people that are outside the U.S., this is from this is from a U.S. point of view. Um, companies are required to store, you know, sometimes five, 10, 15 years worth of data uh, for for legal and liability and compliance purposes. Well, if you tell them that, well, we struggle to just read blockchain data that's a year old, they're not going to touch blockchain. Right, because they're gonna say, "Well, yeah, it's not gonna fit within our in our enterprise." And right, so, that's huge. That's the thing, you know. And, and remember, I think, like I said, think, think about this way. You know, I think seven. I, I don't know what the law. That, I think there's seven years. I think it's for like an for audit purposes, or maybe it's yeah. Five the years IRS, it's seven. It's seven. Well, technically, they can audit you going way back, but their recommendation is keep it keep them at least seven years. Right. So, so imagine tell imagine a blockchain project or a team coming and saying, imagine the Ethereum coming and saying, "Hey guys, you know, integrate Ethereum blockchain," and they say, "Okay, well, we need to keep seven years worth of data for you know for tax purposes," and they're like, "Yeah, sure, no problem." But then when you when the when the when you have to audit that or query a task, they're like, "Wait a minute, there's no way for us to access that data. It's impossible. You know, we have to we have to we have to buy like you know." The entire cloud infrastructure just to do it. So that's you know that's why you don't see. I, I, so when I was in Web two, uh, I was I you know I was working in a couple different capacities, a couple different companies where they, they would buy benefit from blockchain uh, immensely. You know, and it was it was crazy. I was so bad I wanted to implement it, but you know the problem came up with like querying, like hey, like you know this is great from like storing transactions on a shared ledger and with all our vendors and, and especially with a supply chain or even when, even from a healthcare, like Medicare billing perspective, you know, in terms of what I was doing at the time, the blockchain was perfect for it. And they were, they were even on board with it. Uh, that was a crazy, they're like, Oh, we love that. But then the querying of data was the tough part. And you're like, well, I mean, that's yeah. Like, yeah. How do you, you know, they have, to store medical, they have to store medical information for, you know, a decade. Uh, so it's, I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's part of that's been solved. So. Would you say it's fair to say then that you are efficientizing and making it easier and faster to read year-old data on blockchains? Probably, yeah. It would be fair to say. I think that's, that's fair to say, yeah. And, and All right. Eventually, you're going to have to read seven years. Right? It, it, my, my thing is this. Blockchain's validation is going to come when you take the level of volume that we had last year and, in, and you know, of course, this year, and you can efficiently read data at the same speed, you know, that's you know, t- two years old, five years old, at the same speed as you can today with Web two uh, databases and, and kind of Web two database philosophy. Once you can do that, now you've turned the corner. Now you have enterprises that will get on board, and you can start to solve the non-DeFi problems. Um, that I think is when you turn the corner. So yeah, so that's yeah. kind of I guess what I'm working on. 
Yeah, I think that's a it's a huge thing. Um, that's very important. So I think you're you're out there doing the Lord's work. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to. So he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that yeah, answers I, King's question then. Yeah, and if for King, for King, you know, I would, you know, I would, I would tell him like, uh, you know, I refer. I don't know if it's him or her, but um, the the you know, if you if you want to get into Web three and you're not in it right now. Like, oh, I think he is, though. <laughs> oh, he's okay. But uh, so, yeah, so he understands this problem, right? So he understands this. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we're at an hour and a half. These things always go um, so fast. I, I mean, I, I geek out on this stuff really bad. I first got into to crypto because I was interested in blockchain technology and all of this stuff we talked about, you know, how like um, I got pulled into DeFi later. That wasn't my start in it all. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, the potential for, for, for distributed ledger technology and blockchains is extremely untapped and it can grow into so much awesome stuff. And uh, we just wanted to talk about a few of the things here, mainly because um, a Polygon ID um and and a lot of people were wondering, you know, recently in the last little pump because uh, Matic had like a huge pump. They're almost back to like pre-Luna meltdown levels. So um, people were wondering, you know, why did that happen? And and two things really. The Polygon also announced they're buying carbon credits now, so they're now quote unquote technically carbon neutral. Um, and then also mainly the Polygon ID thing. And I think um, a lot of a lot of big kind of like whale style investors, um, I didn't look, but some people were saying when they look at all the data on chain, um, it was a lot of wallets that are uh, pretty big wallets that already hold a lot of Matic as is. We're buying a shit ton more Matic. So um, it looks to me probably like a technology investment situation and and which is a good idea, you know, for everything we talked about here, all the reasons we talked about on the show today. Um, I think the the Polygon investment in Polygon and Polygon Zero could 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 be great. Um, but obviously, I think um, the whole concept that Polygon working towards could be applied to any blockchain. Um, and we'll probably see that because obviously the goal would be to one day have this happening everywhere so you know your your one wallet can benefit from or your your bundle of wallets could benefit um on all uh on all the chains and um especially when it's going to come to what i envision in the future um like i said before they'd potentially be like credit unions operating on subnets so obviously you want to be possibly part of more than one um of these quote-unquote credit unions or one of these decentralized finance institutions of the future. So we'll probably see uh, similar concepts of Polygon ID on multiple chains and, and props to Polygon for, for, for pioneering this, or maybe like Marver said, they're not pioneering it, but they're, they're taking a step in what I would think is the right direction um, for this technology and for really um, unchaining and unleashing the true power of DeFi. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Doesn't look like we have any more questions. Uh, Marvel, you probably disconnected again. So, um, thanks a lot for coming and hanging out with us. I personally really enjoy this. And, uh, oh, wait, Remy's telling me to wait. Sorry, I got to, I had to do the whole thing. Well, I had one thing to say about the institutional investment. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't see that. Yeah, go ahead. My bad. So, so I, I tell you what, I think this is part of, this is where the exciting part is, you know, where the, where the real, where the, you know, they always say that like fortunes are always made 
like in the bear market, right? It's it's not made in the bull market. So when you look at like something with Polygon ID and you know Phantom with FVM and uh, you know Avalanche with their subnets. Uh, and, you know, uh, some of these other, you know, there's a lot of other blockchains that are doing a lot of other great things. What's going to happen is, and then we, we go through the cycle. Like when, you know, we, we go through a recession, the economy then comes down. A lot of these jobs that were created with, with low interest rates, you know, kind of, you know, artificial money, right? Just kind of expanding the money supply that kind of, that, that were basically not, um, sustainable or, 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 or they're not able to be to, to be able to kept they can't be kept without having the current economic environment what ends up happening is companies then will say okay now this is where we invest in technology right because we we basically went through this boom right uh and i use the mortgage industry right you, you saw a rapid expansion i remember they were calling people out of retirement uh to come back and you know help with mortgage with mortgages because the, the industry was booming you know in the united states uh, and now all those people are being laid off, right? Because you know the industry is slowing down. But a lot of these bigger companies are are investing in technology, so they haven't slowed down their spending. They've just shifted it. And so what's what I think you're going to see happen, and and, and I think Fannie Mae, I, I, I'll come out and say it, I think you may see a, a, a possible scenario where Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac actually uses you know something like a Polygon ID. Uh, in order to, to make the mortgage process, the transaction costs significantly lower, you know, to, to, to improve data privacy. Uh, because if you have interest rates that are rising uh, in the economy, you have to lower transaction costs. Like there's no if, else, and buts. Like you, higher interest rates, you have to lower transaction costs, right? And so if the average transaction cost of buying a home is 2 or 3%, you know, with closing costs and all that, and you have interest rates that have now gone up about three percent. <laughs> you know, you can help try to you know offset that by lowering the transaction costs of buying a home. And so something like Polygon ID, Fannie Mae is already on board with wanting to digitize the mortgage process. You know, by 2024, um, for for all banks and lenders, I wouldn't be surprised if you see something like that. Like because it, it would be uh, a huge, huge uh, uh, not only win for crypto it would finally validate that, hey, we can actually use this in, in, in real world use cases and you would lower the transaction costs for a lot of people. So I, I actually think, you know, right now is where like these, what the blockchains are doing right now is probably more important than what they were doing two years ago or even last year. Um, I, th- I actually really, really think that's, that, that this, is, this is the difference between the blockchains that will make it and the ones that won't is what they're doing now because institutions are paying attention because they know that the current economic environment cannot last, like it, it will, it will not last, and so that's where uh, I think Web three is going to is going to make its you know uh, uh, push into into the more mainstream. Yeah, I sold my Matic on the last top a few months ago, so I'll wait. I'll wait for this hype to cool down and maybe grab some more. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else you want to toss on that? Uh, another cherry on the top on this conversation. No. No, I think it was fun. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, it was a fun conversation. So yeah, definitely enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully it was helpful to, to you know, uh, other people as well. Yeah, well, these get recorded, so we can always refer back to them later. You know, hopefully maybe, maybe three years from now, you'll be uh, doing some kind of job interview and you'll be like, look, man, I was talking about this stuff three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll be like, you know, they'll be like, oh, you, did you, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, Polygon ID is, is now integrated into to the, the mortgage application process. I'm like, I was talking about that <laughs> two years ago or three years ago, but no, it's, it's, it's cool. You know, it's, it's just cool. To, you know, you, you want to see it happen. It's, it's not even about, uh, you know, whether it's like, you know, uh, saying you know i was right or wrong it's just you know it, well, it, well, yeah. I, I think the, the exciting thing is to see it happen that, that that's the thing i think about the, the thing that's really cool about web3 and i think for, for other people that may be still listening you know the, the, the web3 is more of a paradigm shift than it is a technology thing and, and i think the, the what's exciting about it is that is that you get to see a different type of economy that comes out of, of the ashes of the one that, you know, uh, you know, is, is obviously not going to last, right? The one that we're currently in now. And so I think th- that's what's exciting about it is that it does give hope. And I think for young, well, younger people too, like there is, there is an excitement that is going to come with uh, kind of a new economy with Web3 and, and a lot of the things that, you know, uh, a lot of the jobs and a lot of the, the things that people can do you know, um, it's endless, right? So I think that is the exciting part. You know, granted, you know, in order for us to get there, we have to kind of see the the current system uh, reach its limits and, and and basically, you know, plateau and, and, and kind of, you know, unfortunately that comes with a bear market and, and comes with a, a big sell-off. But, you know, then after that is, you know, when you get to rebuild and, and, it's a, and that's when it's exciting. It's, you know... That's the the evolution of technology. I mean, it's it's what happened, you know, in '91. It's what happened, you know, with with uh, obviously Web One, and then you know, kind of two, after 2008, 2009, you know, kind of Web Two really is where where that blossomed. And the same thing will happen now with Web Three. So, yeah, I 100% agree, man. Like, I'm 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 really excited to see the change in in society and culture. I'm like, I've always been really big into social psychology and anthropology you know, different cultures around the world. And, and all of this stuff really ties into it, especially in the modern world, all the finance stuff, all the privacy stuff, all the identity stuff. And um, I'm also interested to see how this all shapes up on a, on a, on a legal scale. Um, you know, I think there's going to be some, uh, some blockchain, uh, blockchain and, and Web3, I think it's going to end up creating its own, um its own like niche practice of law um already i mean it kind of is you see cases with people with front running bots and and stuff like that and and people rugging projects and exploits so um it's already kind of headed in that direction but i think it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna gear up more in that direction in the legal realm agreed And and there's a great book uh you know i know we're over time so i guess i'll end with this there's a great book people can read it's called edi and the law by Ian Walden, uh, was, I think it was written in 1989 or 1990. The, 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 you know, and so chapter, I think it was a chapter nine or section three, chapter nine, something like that. It actually talks about uh, smart contracting uh, in the United States. Uh, so this is, you know, like at the dawn of web one, you know, they started talking about this stuff. So the, the interesting thing is that the, the legal ramifications have already been kind of explored. Granted that information is outdated, but, but you know, it, it, what's funny is that uh, a lot of this stuff happens on a, a larger level with, you know, like, you know, enter big enterprises, like, you know, big Fortune 500 companies using smart contracts or what they call EDI, uh, th- those types of uh, uh, contracts, you know, between different big enterprises for supply chain purposes and stuff like that. And so we don't really see it on, on the ground level, at the consumer level, but a lot of the, the same frameworks that happen at that level 
uh, you know, can happen at this level. That's why when people, you know, it's why when people say crypto is a security, it's like, no, it's not like, because otherwise that means the, the type of like, you know, EDI that Walmart does with, you know, a big company that, that's a vendor of theirs, that would be a security too, because it's not any different. Right. And so it's, you know, I, I think the, the crypto part is what kind of confuses uh, that relationship. But yeah, that's a great book for people who want to explore the legal frameworks. I think chapter nine of uh, section three is what covers the, uh, the U.S. Uh, smart contracting in the U.S. legal framework. And like I said, it's 1989, 1990, but it's still a great book, even though it's, you know, 30 years old. Damn, you're into everything. No, I, I just, I just I, you know, it's funny. I was studying Web3 before I knew what Web3 was. Uh, but I just didn't realize it was what I was like, oh, this is what Web3 is. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't know what that was. I was like, oh, okay, now, you know. So, yeah, so it, it was once I kind of just discovered Web3, I was like, oh, you can, it's easier to link this stuff up together because I was already trying to uh, understand that. I just didn't, I didn't know that's what Web3 was. Because, um, you know, you just you think of it from a crypto perspective. And the, the, I think that kind of overshadows the, the, what are like some of the real like uh, meaningful use cases of Web3. Yeah, and it's um, definitely like a, a, a bigger picture thing, you know, like um, you get a little bit of experience and knowledge in, in the legal realm, in the finance realm, in the housing and marketing and, and contracts, which falls under the legal realm, I guess. And and the picture becomes a little more clear, I think. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then, and then I don't know, like I said, um, for anyone who really can't understand, you know, like how, why I geek out on this so much and why I'm excited for all this, what I think is going to be upcoming technology. But like you said, a paradigm shift that really is what, in my opinion, the really cool part about it is to see this change that's going to happen in our culture and society that we all know is going to happen. It is. It is. And that's why people should feel, people should feel positive about like, there is a there is a uh, uh, light at the end of the tunnel in terms of you know Web three is what allows it allows individuals and people to finally interact with the economy the way that they should have always been able to right rather than this kind of hundred year old uh, top down centralized banking distribution model right retail model with retail banks that is just outdated and and you can see the cracks in it in terms of why it doesn't work anymore so. And the legal part of it, you know, it, it really is interesting how the legal aspect of this is really, has, there's a lot of books that have already talked about this and that have already kind of, you know, laid these things out. And I think what's happened is because crypto started with the exchanges of like, you know, your coin, the Coinbase's and the Binance's, that SEC that was like, oh, that kind of falls into our realm. And so everybody's kind of attention diverted away from, hey, are we not looking at like, what the regulation is around uh, contract law uh, in the U.S. and how we govern uh, EDI uh, and when it comes to contracts. And, and instead, you know, they're like, oh, Coinbase and Binance and, you know, FTX. And that kind of really like the sucked all the attention away from what the real value was. And instead, the SEC is like, oh, now we're going to look at this as security or commodity and, and then, you know, Congress, of course, took the bait, right? And they're like, oh, well, I, okay, I guess that's, that's what it is, that's all about, right? And, and they ignored what, the, what is actually the real value, uh, which is the actual interchange, uh, that EDI interchange, uh, which stands for electronic, you know, data interchange. So I, th I think, um, you know, the, that's the part that'll be exciting, you know, um, 
granted, you know, the U.S. is, is kind of taking a uh, kind of a, a detour around to it, but maybe they'll eventually get back to it. Uh, you know, and, and hopefully they don't, they don't, you know, regulate crypto out of out of uh, existence because then you know it's just going to go to other countries. Uh, the, the innovation. So uh, yeah, we'll see. But I think the legal part, you know, is is I actually think that's going to be the easier part because because the, the, the U.S. has a uh, a, you know, a strong contract law um, history, right? You know, that, that's what I think makes the U.S. The, the irony is that the U.S. is actually probably better positioned to take the lead on Web3 than other countries because it has such a strong contract law legal framework that can be applied. It's just, it's just, it's just literally pivoted its entire attention towards the use case of Web3 that that is you know towards like securities or you know or, or supposedly securities and all that and that's what is kind of it's kind of weird is it's like they they didn't it's like they made a left turn and and you know it's like well hold on a second like like where are you guys going like you guys are going the wrong direction so uh that's the kind of part that uh you know is unfortunate but you know i mean maybe they'll figure it out eventually yeah and that's and that's that's a conversation you and i have had before as well to where um you know in in case people haven't haven't thought about that um because people always talk about you know they have these these hearings and meetings and and those uh presidential executive orders for the uh studies and recommendations on crypto and especially uh stable coins and um like i have uh i have a an understanding of of legal history in america and i paid attention to some older cases and um like um, states versus OCC, uh, when all these banks were upset with the OCC for allowing fintech companies to enact bundling programs, which is essentially taking away business from the banks. And the OCC was right. like, uh, the OCC was like, nah, banks, like you're kind of like the old news and this is what people want, uh, is, is the fintech and the new technology. So we're going to let them have it. And, uh, man, a bunch of banks in multiple cases fought the same case. Uh, I mean, in multiple states. Because they kept losing, and um, and that's kind of what happened with those uh, those presidential executive orders for the studies and recs. The the president uh, work group, the OCC and the FDIC, all participated in that. And in my opinion, they all returned good news, which is essentially like, "Yo, go with it." Like the the crypto, but mainly I say crypto, but like the distributed ledger technology bull is too big to grab by the horns anymore. Like the this isn't there anymore all you got is the carrot and that ties to what you said with you know the america's positioned actually in a really good spot to kind of take the lead on this and if they don't another country will and um i know you and i have had the joke about uh us uh the um, not usd 2.0 but the uh um oh, petrodollar 2.0 what was it? The the, the, the oil the, dollar, the, the the petro the petrodollar, right? Oh yeah, petrodollar yeah. two point oh. So because so so who? Yeah, so 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 sorry, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. Finish your thought. I apologize. It's it's just that you know, like um, America is really well positioned, and it seems like those studies and recs returned the idea that, like, yeah, maybe a U.S. should go with it, but you, but like you said, they're kind of focusing in maybe some of the the wrong parts, but. Um, the, you know, as America is kind of like the, the USD, we see the most popular stable coins are pegged to USD. 
And, you know, the U.S. is kind of losing grip on USD dominance. Like a lot of countries are starting to cash other countries' reserves as reserve currencies. And the the grip on the petrodollar is kind of fading. And I'm not going to get into the politics of any of that, if it's right, if it's wrong, whatever. I'm just saying as far as like what we're talking about with with the us and and a strong background in contract law and being positioned to maybe kind of help uh crypto and acceptance of distributed ledger technology into all of this stuff we're talking about to get more mainstream acceptance like they are positioned kind of well and then if they just went along with this and they went with the recommendations uh studies that the the president ordered and just issue the the um the stablecoin issuers give them special purpose banking charters so they could then have FDIC and SPIC insurances and and be legit then that would essentially be the petrodollar 2.0 and it would really put a lot of faith into crypto which is then going to put faith into distributed ledger technology and and I think that could be a great catalyst into all this other good stuff we've been talking about Right, and, 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 I'll t- and I'll tell you why that if you, even if you take all the geopolitics out of it, I'll tell you just from a, from an inevitable state why there is a a bigger incentive for other countries to take the lead on Web three rather than U.S. If you look at the Middle East, and then you look at if you look at the the VC investment, uh, you know, I was I was uh, I was visiting a, a couple of buddies down at uh, you know at consensus at consensus in Austin. Uh, Texas, and uh, you know, was asking them like, "Hey, you know, what, what, where do you see a lot of the VC startup money coming from?" They said, "Well, from the Middle East, like you know, uh, all from like the Middle East, a, a big chunk of it." I said, well, "Was that really the case? You know, like a few years ago?" They said, "No, it's been more recently." And, and what's happening is, you know, the, the Middle East has has kind of seen that you know its its economy has really been built on oil, and, and I don't know what the date is, but I think you know, like some of these Middle Eastern countries are running out of oil, right? Uh, you know, and then of course there's this, there's this kind of pressure to get away from fossil fuels. So, th- if their entire economy, or 80 percent, or 90 percent of their economy is, is is entirely dependent on oil and fossil fuels, something they're running out of, um, or something that's you know there's a lot of pressure to move away from, they have to find a new way to to uh, uh, bring in a, a, a new type of economy. And so there's a greater incentive for con- for economies that rely on on uh, kind of single source uh, revenue. Or, or single sources of revenue for, for their economy, you know, in, in, you know, Russia, you know, you look at uh, uh, the Middle East, you look at, of course, uh, you know, Venezuela, some of these countries in, in South America, there's a bigger incentive for them to move to Web3 and kind of take the lead on that because, you know, they are kind of on a, on a timeline that is, is running out where, where if they don't have something there that, uh, and another country takes the lead on it, you know, it, it'll be very, it'll be very you know, difficult for them to, to make that transition. The reason why the United States has uh, the best uh, uh, kind of is best position to lead it is because if you look at the U.S. is is you know for all its flaws, like it's a it's it, it is the country that has the strongest legal protections and contract enforcement, right? And so it, it, when you look at a, a country like China and and if you look at like you know UCC uh, its contracts or just contract law. You know, whenever there are like claims or illegal claims, for, you know, from a company in the United States against a company in China, I think the enforcement of those, you know, against the Chinese company is, is almost never. Um, 
But in the United States, it, it has got the, the most like fair market system for protecting contract law. The U.S. is by, by far the strongest country in the world when it comes to protecting contract law. And so if you were you know, to say, okay, well, Web3 is really that you, you have to have a strong legal framework and you have to have, a, you have, to have a, 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 uh, an entity, or in this case, like the, you know, a country that basically can kind of you know, guarantee that, that the, con- the smart contract uh, uh, you know, protections can apply the same way as they do with regular contracts. You know, which country has the strongest contract protection in the world? And in the U.S., it has a vast history and has, and also has a strong reputation of protecting contract law. Uh, whereas, you know, a country, a country like China, uh, historically, the reputation, you know, does not does not let it lend itself to that. And that is the reason why the U.S. is best positioned for it. That, that's the that's the irony, right? That's the that's the irony. Like they they really. You know, uh, they they have this in place, uh, but they're they're like I said, they completely focus their attention on you know crypto and what is a stable coin and what is not a stable coin and oh should the SEC be involved and CFTC involved and I was like when does the SEC get involved in contract law when does that CFTC get involved in contract law you know that's the that's the weird part and I think that's why they're struggling to find a way how it fits because then they when they get into the weeds and they're like wait a minute like this is this is like this doesn't kind of really fit into the security. And so I, you know, but the incentive, like I said, you take all the politics out of it and just purely just look at the, at the fundamental inevitability that the, the, the countries that, you know, uh, that really embrace web three are the ones that where they're, where the future economies will, will run through. Right. Uh, and the re- that's why the middle East and all these other countries outside the U S have a very, very, very like passionate, very strong incentive to take that lead and not allow the U.S. to do that because they, you know, they, they have to find a way to replace uh, parts of their economy that inevitably will eventually uh, dry up, you know, or, 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 or there won't be enough you know, oil or whatever it is. So that's, I think, where, you know, that, that's the, the, you know, if the U.S. obviously does it. That's where, the, yeah, you're right, is the petrodollar 2.0. And if they don't, then, you know, another country will take that lead and, you know, you probably won't have a petrodollar anymore. Um, you can't really have a petrodollar if you think about it, because if, if the Middle East starts to run out of oil, then you know the petrodollar starts to lose its relevance. Um, the the one point right? The, the the current petrodollar. So I, I think that you know, all politics aside, there's an inevitability of what is going to happen, and uh, the question is is you know who who will really win that that race? But it's going to happen, like either way. I think that's you know. Oh, yeah. uh, And that's that's my my take on it. That's what I was saying, you know, from the recent committee hearings and then also those two executive orders um, for the studies and recommendations, the the recommendations that were returned. um, They seem to be kind of kind of hinting and hinting towards that. And um, I'm thinking. And and it kind of sucks that this is the way it has to be, you know, like, oh, well, this is this is some great thing. And and if we don't do it like someone else is good, you know, these other people and, and oh God, yeah, the, the geopolitics like I, I don't want to get into this too deep. It just really sucks, in my opinion, that it's not like, hey, this can be like revolutionary technology that, you know, is going to better society for all human beings across the planet. Like it's it, I wish that alone could be incentive enough 
But, you know, it, with everything you just laid out, I mean, I guess it's a good thing because it's going to help us get there. But it seems like, you know, there's going to be this new incentive for the for the U.S. to be like, well, you know, if we don't do it, then these other people are going to. And, you know, this is potential for because it's all going to come back to money, of course. Like this is a potential for a huge market. And, um, you know, so we need to get in there and we need to have control over it because it's all going to be money and power, I guess, in, in, in the end. And in some way, that's going to be the argument, I think, uh, to the, the, the top level politicians in the U.S. So, like, whatever, if that's the way it has to be, I, I'm still thankful for it. But, but I do think that's the way it is going. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually figured out what the pro- I actually figured out what's caused me to be muted is, is if I if, I think if I like uh, you know uh, touch my screen or something where it's like I drop out of the menu or something I think maybe that's what's causing it. But uh, no, I agree with you 100. percent I, I think um, you know that, that what what I think is really nice is that it's, it, it, it 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 is you don't even have to apply politics to it. You, you just the world is moving to a uh, uh, like a new type of economy, uh, and um, th- th- you know that economy is going to be really you know structured on Web three. And, and what is really government's role in in, in you know that Web three is basically like is is basically you know enforcing the protections of those smart contracts, right? And because uh, if you think about, it, we're also moving into this. You're also kind of thinking about like we're moving into this kind of border, borderless world where like you can expand you know empires dig, dig, digitally, right? You know, so like I go back to the example like the Middle East, right? You know, one of the reasons why they have a big incentive, you know, to really lead Web three and define what that looks like, and you know, you you think about like Phantom and how like the smart city was kind of the original adaptation or the original vision. Um, it's because you can apply that then like in other places around the world, you know, just like the U.S. kind of implanted its, you know, it kind of really implanted its, its form of economic systems uh, or economic system, you know, uh, in other countries that, that, that helped those other countries. It's the same thing, you know. And so what, you know, what will happen is if you have, if you, you could have a situation uh, one day where, where you have, um, you know, smart cities or web, you have web three, you uh, um, countries that lead web three that actually you know actually help drive economies in other countries right that help drive other countries from afar and that you know so i think we're moving into this in this like era where um you know we go back to the petrodollar right like where the whoever's leading web three really is the petrodollar 2.0 you know uh, or the petro one or, or whatever you want to call it but whoever's really leading that is going to define that because you know other economies around the world cannot stay on a legacy system that has high transaction costs that has lo- uh, slower settlement times that has uh, that cannot move with the market or, or it's too expensive to do anything uh, or, or relies on you know just printing more money and so so that web three that those countries that are really power that are really really strong in web three are going to su- supplant its influence like in other parts of the world um, just you know, uh, by the mere fact that they, you know they're no more efficient, and so that I think is the that's the you know that's the part where it is it is a you know I, I think citizens like or like just consumers you know uh, will once again like you know they um, they will they will kind of have the power back in their hands right because you know they will eventually you know, immigrate to the countries that are going to best align with decentralization or best align with open source, you know, open source everything. 
And so that's where I think uh, it, it, it's, that's where it's nice. It's like, it, it, like governments will have to compete to be like efficient and, and be supportive of like, uh, you know, Web3 because uh, that is what the societies are going to want. Yeah, that's it. Oh, man. Just for some reason, though, hearing you say that, it, it makes me think, like, wouldn't it be terrible if, like, you know, it's like 2050, we've got all this stuff going on, but then there's going to be, like, like physical wars over, like, digital control of things at, like, Web3. <laughs> like, I don't, oh, think, man, I, don't think, I don't think that would be the case. Because, you know, the thing is, 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 is like, we, with, with the information age, with internet, and, like, I think what you saw, what you've seen is that people um, like it doesn't matter where they're they're from like they, they kind of the people all really want kind of the same things in life in terms of you know like family or happiness or you know career or you know the, the ability to own something you know whether it's a house or a car you know or and pass that down to their kids and stuff like that and so there's you know, I, I don't think anybody's, you know, trying to go get Lamborghinis and Lambos, <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe except for some of the whales in crypto. But uh, but in general, like, like because they're, you know, because we're, we're in this age of like information with with like, you know, social media and and uh, uh, content, you know, online content, like countries don't really have control of its citizens anymore to, to go wage war physically. Because, you know, you look at, like, what's happened is, like, those, like a country can go in and, and, and try to invade or occupy a country, and, and if its citizens reject it, right, then, eventually, you know, eventually, like, it's, it, will, it will fail, it will collapse. And then you can go even point to every single event in history. I mean, the USSR, you know, uh, you, can, you can point to, you know, countries in the Middle East. I mean, you can, you can point to countries in South America, in Europe. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, people, like, people are free. And, you know, and, and, and like free, you know, free societies, open free societies will always win in the end. Right. And so I think what governments are, you know, are starting to recognize is that, oh, we cannot like centralize, essentially control everything forever. Like we will eventually lose. And if we try to impose our will militarily or by force, that that will also fail as well. You know, and so that's where I, I have like hope for that, that. As long as people are educated and people are 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 smart, like that is what will always uh, uh, kind of be the best defense against, um, you know, uh, like you can't take something digitally, right? That's the thing. That's the, the you it, you really can't, right? Because the participation is what governments rely on, right? So if, if you know government or a country could go occupy another country or invade another country, and nobody wants to participate or interact with that that country, then eventually, like you know. The, the that other country or that occupying force like will lose right there may be a struggle in the in the process but you know that, that that's why they have to convince people right they have to they have to persuade future generations to be like no this this, this is why you want central control or this is why you want uh, uh central banking or whatever it may be um but yeah, I think that's. I don't. Yeah, I think that's what the the, the Web three is obviously in the power. It's, it's in the hands of like the individual, and in, in the hands of like uh, individual people. And that is why, uh, you know, just what I think a lot of legacy systems, you know, legacy banking, legacy governments, that's what they're afraid of, right? Uh, because you know, it's the obsolescence uh, battle between they don't want to become obsolete, uh, but they 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 see they see it's inevitable. So right. Uh, that's yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't worry, but I don't worry as much about it. 
I feel like that's a a big part where I think we're, I feel like we're already seeing that, you know, like um, if you watched, uh, you know, like any of the committee hearings and stuff, um, you can just tell by the look on the faces of of these politicians, you know, that are older. And you can tell there's like younger ones that are like, yeah, man, we need to get on this. But then you can see the older ones that probably like, I don't know, the the bank and oil and, and legacy finance system like paid for all of their like campaign uh, <laughs> costs and everything. So, and, and also that's all they know. So they're like, Oh no, you know, we can't, we can't replace that. We can't. Um, I, I feel like current um, politics and current financial systems are, are definitely going to try to fight against this just because they want to keep their control. They want to keep the money flowing. And, um, I mean, and, and once again, with the old, um, you know, with the old states versus OCC cases, we saw exactly that. I mean, it, yeah. it's essentially the same thing. It was, it was the legacy banks wanting to stop this new technology, the new fintech guys coming up and revolutionizing things. They wanted to stop them because fintech was cutting in to a share of the legacy banks, um, profit. So right. yeah, we're gonna see resistance, and and that sucks. But I think end of the day, it's gonna win out just because it simply makes more sense. It makes the most business sense. These businesses will be more profitable, more successful. It's gonna be easier to use by making this Web three transition, and it's that it's for that very reason alone is why I think it's inevitable because it, it's always gonna be about the profit margins and the bottom lines in business. So I think that is the reason why it's going to be unstoppable. Yeah. And I'll just, uh, I'll close with this thought, you know, with the, with the business enterprise thing, you know, at the end of the day, the, 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 when economies shrink, right. And you go into recessions, the, the number one thing that, uh, in interest rates rise, the number one thing that businesses have to do is they have to reduce overhead and they have to reduce the cost of transacting, they have to reduce the, the, the cost of managing data. They have to reduce the cost of moving data. And they have to, they have to, do, they have to reduce the cost of the inefficiencies within their, their business cycle. Uh, and, and a lot of these are all usually related to people, uh, uh, you, you know, because when they, you know, if they have to lay people off because now there's a smaller revenue uh, uh, base that, that they can, you know, that, that their business is going to generate. Well, all the other functions of the business still have to run. And so, like, you know, if you look at Web3 alone, uh, just, just its pure value from the ability to reduce transaction costs in almost every facet and in almost every sector. And, and, and just like I said, you know, when we when we started on the outset of this call, like I, I have worked in a, in several different industries, from transportation to you know home builder and, and real estate, and even you know Medicare and healthcare, and, and it's the same problem in every single industry is that the transaction costs. And the, the cost of managing that data and, and, and reconciling that data is just very, very high. And so if you have a technology that can solve that problem out of the box, it is, it is going to eventually be implemented by those companies. Like I said, the only thing right now is the query problem you have to solve because no company you know, can, can really, uh, they don't have the personnel or the expertise to deal with that, that seven-year problem of like, hey, we got to keep data for seven years, but on the blockchain, trying to query data that's <laughs> over seven years is very difficult. So, you know, that's the challenge. But yeah, I, I, it is inevitable. It is going to happen. And I think what's nice is, you know, we're starting to see, you know, these are the conversations like you and I are having right now where 
it's bridging that gap between, you know, I guess TradFi, as people call it, with DeFi or, or you know, Web2 with Web3 uh, and just kind of looking at, okay, like, what are, the, what are the, 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 the real values, like, right now, right? Because that's what organizations need to see is, like, what are the real values right now? Not, not what the real values will be seven years from now, but the real values right now. There are real values today that could be implemented today that would have an impact today. That is, you know, that is a fact, and I and I, I know it. I know it 100. It's why I made the move to Web three. It's it, it was why I could no longer work in Web two. It was like I cannot deny what it was in front of me, which is you know uh, the the software that I was working on was inadequate to solve the real problem where blockchains were already able to solve that. And I was like, I, you know, like there's a technology here that can solve. And I'm talking about non DeFi use cases. And so I was like, you know, why, why am I going to try to uh, go against the grain of, of, you know, trying to stay in Web 2 when, a web, when, when, when I'm myself as a developer, like looking at how this would solve real use cases and real problems today. But I, I just, you know, I, I can't do that if, if I'm in a Web 2 capacity. I, I got to move into that, that field in order to, to, to make that impact. So that, that's, yeah, that was my big catalyst was, you know, it, it, it was almost like, at first, I, I tried to kind of deny, like, oh, okay, well, Web3, uh, like, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a great ideal, kind of idealistic thing. But then, you know, I, I was like, oh, okay, this, there's an actual implementation of this that I can't deny would benefit this company. And, this, and even when I, when, when I got the validation from some of the clients I was working with, you know, and uh, even in the healthcare industry, I was like, oh, they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. We'd love that. It, it, they didn't know I was describing blockchain and consensus and all that, but that's what I was describing. It. And they're like, they would do like, we would love that. But, you know, there's the problem of getting them over the hump, you know? Yeah, and the, there's a, I mean, we can, not to not to pick on Geist or anything, um, but there's a great example of that. They they had of the of the problem of querying the data. I mean, so Geist isn't even a year old now, right? It was like back in last October it launched, and they had this really cool feature where you could see, because, you know, like you earn you earn protocol fees and then you, you claim them and, and do whatever the hell you want with them, but um, they had this really cool feature that I don't know if they took it off the front end or not because I know I bitched about it never working um, after like a while it never worked but they had this cool feature where you could click and it would it would query and scrape and compile all of the data for that for your wallet for that wallet and then show you up to date all the fees you've collected in the past and after like the first three or four months the amount of data was so large and there was so much overhead and latency with with calling all that data, with querying all the data that like it just didn't work. I would click the button and I would literally walk away from my computer for a half hour and then I would come back and it still hadn't loaded up. So clearly that's going to be a huge issue when we get into what you're saying, you know, seven years down the road. And and it, with that context, I think you're talking about the IRS and taxes. So therefore, that amount of data is going to be freaking massive. Like you imagine every last little paper receipt that that some contractor has photocopied, you know, for like a, a, a coffee at AMPM because it's a business write off because they were on the way to the job site or whatever. Like so much data um, that has to be put there. So, I mean, once again, it sounds like what you're working on to efficientize that, um, is, is really awesome. Um, a, a good step in the right direction. Cause we, right. we definitely need to efficientize that. 
And, uh, and here's the, you, you talked about the IRS, uncollateralized lending. What do you, what do you need? You have to be able to query back, you know, years to see if people have a good payment history, right? Um, because, it, you know, seven years is what they look at on your credit report. And so that's the, the same thing applies. You know, can you imagine if someone's like, oh, you know, uh, Sunfire, we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, we're, we're going to see if we can approve you for a loan. Uh, mathematically, we're going to you know, run our algorithms against your payment history on the on the blockchain, and you're like, well, I know that it's going to, it's you know, the thing is going to time out when they try to do that. So, you know, they'll be like, we'll get back to you in four weeks because it's going to take us four weeks to try to query this data. <laughs> you know, that's the problem, right? It's like you can't do uncollateralized lending if you don't have the query ability to go back and look at history very, and, you know, think think about the whole like pre-approval process for loan. You know, you, you, the value of Web three would be saying we can approve someone for an uncollateralized loan, just using algorithms to go through and look at their payment history to see if, you know, if, if they have a solid payment history, just like the traditional agencies do. The, you know, those agencies do that in, in, in mere seconds, right? And so that's the, the benchmark or that's the standard in which you know, uh, you, blockchains have to then get to in order to convince uh, you know, businesses and enterprises saying, hey, you, this is why you should use Web3 uncollateralized lending systems because we can you know, do the exact same thing. We can do it just as fast as the traditional agencies and we can do it at no cost, right? Because, or, very, or very little cost, you know, much lower cost than the traditional agencies. And there's no discrimination against it. It's all mathematical, right. you know, that's the cool it's, part. It's, it's tricky though because those like they like traditionally okay they they query that information they get all the data in a matter of seconds but that's all from like private centralized servers you know so to do this yes. in a in a decentralized way using blockchains uh, like we discussed before and and I think you know in our conversations you you've talked about subnets a lot you know um, I, I yeah it's most likely going to have to be uh, a whole series of subnets hub and spoke. I'm wondering even, I don't know. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, wonder, by the way. 100% I wonder right. if in blocks you could have pointers to blocks of other chains or just pointers to other chains. You know, it's like, oh, you want this data? Okay, we're going to have to go over here. Oh, you want that data? We're going to have to go over here. And that way you could have a whole series of subnets and a whole series of chains all working together. Um, and, and yeah, it would have to return that data really fast. Uh, but I'm just thinking as far as decentralized way of doing this, I think that's how it's going to have to have to be. Maybe, I don't know. Well, and this is, so yeah, the question really centers around, uh, an O what's called an OLAP problem, right? So OL, OLTP is online, online transaction processing, uh, which is built for speed and, you know, recording data. And that's essentially what blockchain has achieved you know how to do that uh effectively the and it's still improving that but the, the the fundamental problem is the olap piece which is the query piece and the, your guys example is a great example it's like you know uh you can deposit money into geist and bam you know instantly see see that in there and it's a, it's a very fluid transaction you know yeah the gas fees are much higher than they're supposed to be but you know the it could be happening very quickly but the querying of data, it's like you said, that feature they had to get rid of because it like it literally after four months was like, it, you know, it was just the data was too big. And so this is an OLAP problem and um, it is solvable. 
I think this is, but but it's a different mindset, you know. And I think that's where uh, that's why I was, you know, that that's kind of where where I came in to Web three because I've worked primarily. I've worked on OLTP engines, but I've spent a lot of time on OLAP and especially in big data, uh, where you're having to, you know, process massive amounts of data, and you know, the traditional methods of doing that just fail. And so there are a lot of, you know, you talk about the pointer. So indexing services are. Uh, you know, the use of surrogate keys and, and without getting too technical, like, uh, you know, kind of what they call star schema configurations, dimensions and, and fact tables, but, you know, not not SQL driven, but the same concepts apply there. Um, you know, caching, caching, depending on where you're from, you know, using caching. There's a number of ways to solve the problem. The problem is solvable. One hundred percent. It is solvable. And it has to be because if you if you are going to convince an entire um uh, kind of, you know, industry or an entire economy to say, you know, that's built on lending and borrowing and saying, listen, the ability for people to get credit or the, the ability to extend credit to qualified individuals who meet those requirements and the, the, and the ability for that, you know, business cycle to not be held up by, um, you know, the, the lending and borrowing process being too slow. Um, you, you're going to have to uh, match the same speed, or at least be close to it, as what with these privatized. You're right; it's, it, they have they have it easier because it's privatized, but they also get it wrong too. Like, look at how many people have who have bad information on their credit reports, and they have to kind of fight to get all that bad information off. And sometimes it's wrong, and you know, it, 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 they they do it. So, so the current system is very fast, but it's also not very good. Like, it's not very accurate either. It's it's probably less accurate than people realize. So. Um, if you solve the speed problem, you, like, like it's game over. Like you will have uncollateralized lending adopted in mass form throughout the throughout a, 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 an industry that relies heavily on lending and borrowing, especially in the in the United States. And that is, I think, what um, you, know, you know. That's the part that, that that we're trying to solve right now. Which is is we we solve that part. It completely changes the 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 the, the landscape of. What, how Web3 integrates into broader parts of the economy completely changes it because that is the part that right now holds it back. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I think it has to match the same speed. I think that that is a standard that, uh, like, uh, you know, com- like companies and, and consumers and, and the economy has come to expect uh, or have gotten so used to. And uh, we can get there. Like, it's 100% solvable, 100% solvable. But it just, you know, it's going to take. You know, uh, good engineering and good architecting of solutions, and, and kind of really thinking outside the box. And so, I think, yeah, that's the exciting part is that you know we know that it can be solved, and it's a, it's a nice uphill battle, but uh, one that'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, it definitely, it definitely sounds, uh, it definitely sounds fun and good, and, and I'm glad you're working on that. Um, yeah, hopefully that we we just we just came back around and and more specifically answered King's question once again there. So I think well, we, very we, cool. we did that one. Yeah. Cool. So um, yeah, yeah, the, I gotta uh, run, but... yeah the, the current <laughs> record was um, was two hours and seventeen minutes for one of these podcasts, which was also was also me and the Pocket Pals guys. So we just broke the uh, we just broke the old record. Uh, so Very thank cool. you for being here and making history with us because we all know three years from now, people are going to be looking back to these Podtown podcasts and they're going to be like, wow, these guys are so ahead of their time. And they're going to become this new cliche thing all over YouTube, millions of views. Um, 
So yeah, thank you once again for coming and doing this. And uh, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe we can maybe we can do this again on some other topic in the future. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, same here. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and, and definitely we have to come back. All right, man. Well, you take care out there, and uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you here soon <laughs> again later, cool. man. All right. See you guys. Bye. All right. That's the end of uh, Moshi Moshi. And uh, thanks for everyone for being here. And we will see you next time.